Amen. Well, please do turn now in your Bibles uh, with me to Isaiah chapter 13, uh, the passage that we'll be looking at for a few minutes this morning. Isaiah chapter 13. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of nations, of nation, an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the ends of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty it will come, therefore all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless." I'll make people more rare than fine gold, and mankind than the gold of offer. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And like a hunted gazelle, or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people, and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through, and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Behold, I am stirring up the meads against them for, who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of their womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there. And their houses will be full of howling creatures. There ostriches will dwell. And there wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant palaces. Its time is close at hand. And its days will not be prolonged. Amen. Amen. Well, the book of Isaiah is a book of grace. It is, as we have noted, the book that the early church called the fifth gospel, because it is a book that is absolutely dripping with the grace of God towards sinners. Now, that is not something that is always immediately obvious when we just read through this book, especially when we read chapters like the one that we're looking at this morning, it's easy, I think, especially in our culture, 
for our minds to be grabbed by the warnings of God's judgments against sin to the point where it's hard to see past them. The words that Isaiah uses, the prophecies that he makes of the coming judgment of God can seem so draconian and shockingly barbaric that it's hard for us to see much further. Now, that language, of course, is intentional. These warnings are designed to shock not just us with our 21st century Western sensibilities, but are designed to shock every reader of this book. These are warnings that describe the solemn and serious wrath of God against sin. They are warnings that put into sharp relief the true nature of those sins that we can so easily excuse and just shrug off. Now, as we have seen as we studied the first 12 chapters of Isaiah last year, as we noted last week as we got back up to speed with Isaiah, interwoven through those passages of warning and predictions of judgment is a running golden thread of God's grace. It's present simply in the warnings of judgment themselves, isn't it? Right? That's one of our fundamental hermeneutical principles, isn't it? It's one of those fundamental principles of interpretation that whenever you read a warning of God's judgment against sin, there is bound up with it an implicit invitation to repentance. With every warning of God's judgment against sin, there is inseparably wound up with it an invitation to turn away from that sin and cast yourself upon the mercy and the grace of God. And it's what undergirds the story of Jonah's ministry in Nineveh, isn't it? A proclamation of God's judgment. There is no record that Jonah went anywhere in Nineveh and told them that there was mercy for them if only they repented of their sin. All that we are told is that Jonah warned them of the coming judgment of God against their sin. But the result was that they cast themselves in faith before God, and they found mercy. It's what lies behind Exodus 12, verse 38, that tells us about the group that escaped from God's judgment on Egypt. It tells us that they weren't just Hebrews, but they were, quote, a mixed multitude. It was a group that included not just the descendants of Jacob, but also Egyptians who had heard the warnings, who had heeded the message of the plagues, who knew that Israel's God would bring a judgment on the land, and who had humbly cast themselves in faith before God. It's what lies behind Rahab's profession of faith in Joshua 2. She only tells the spies that she had only ever heard of the righteousness of God, and his determination to vindicate his people against their enemies. But it was enough for her to humbly cast herself in faith before God and be incorporated into Israel. With each of these warnings of judgment, there is always an implicit invitation to repentance. That is why there is a warning and not just immediate judgment. As we've also seen, there are, there are explicit declarations of God's grace, explicit invitations to repentance, as we trace these last week. We won't go over them again this morning, but punctuating the first 12 chapters are repeated explicit declarations of God's grace to those who turn from their sin 
and turn to Him in repentance and faith. All the way through this book, even in the, the grim and dark chapters, there is the mercy of God on display. There is the grace of God being offered to those who are being warned that their sin will elicit the judgment of God. Isaiah is a book that is running through with the gospel. But as we have studied the first 12 chapters, we've seen that the focus of this book has very much just been confined to Judah. It's been confined to the covenanted people of God at times, including those who dwelt in the northern kingdom of Israel. But specifically and repeatedly, the focus has been really on those who dwelt in the southern kingdom of Judah. The focus has been showing the people of God their own sin. It has been showing them how they have departed from their first love. It has been showing them how they have wandered away from their covenant God. And the message of those first 12 chapters, Isaiah preaching to the Judeans, has been to call them back, to open their eyes to their sin, and to return to the God whom they professed to follow. But now, as we turn to chapter 13, the focus changes. And we see that this gospel of God's grace, this good news, that there is mercy to be found for all those who repent of their sin and cast themselves upon the Lord in faith, it is a message that is to go out to the nations. It is, as we sing, a gospel that is to go as far as the curse is found. As we begin chapter 13, our horizon is now widened and we're brought to see that the grace of God is not simply offered to a specific people of one ethnic descent, but is instead a grace that is to be offered to every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. In this new section that we start here that will run on through chapter 27, we're brought to see both the powerful sovereignty of God who rules over the nations, who will hold all people accountable to their deeds, but who also extends the offer of forgiveness to whosoever will believe. What we're introduced to in this section is a global gospel that is to be offered universally even to those who have been enemies of God and His people. And so we begin here with this oracle concerning Babylon. Now that we begin here with Babylon is significant in and of itself. Now, do you understand that Isaiah didn't just pick somewhere at random to begin his oracles to the nations? Right? He'll go on and we'll see him make declarations to Philistia, and to Moab, to Damascus, to Cush, to Egypt, to Tyre and Sidon. In, verse, in chapter 24, this will all culminate with a declaration of judgment on the whole earth. But Isaiah picks Babylon here at the start, and he picks it for good reason. He picks it because Babylon stood as really the proverbial epitome of ungodliness. The kingdom of Assyria is the real and present threat that's hovering in the background to Isaiah 13. Isaiah, Assyria is the, is the northern empire uh, that, are, that are breathing threats against Israel and uh, Judah. Assyria represented the, the daunting, intimidating power of the world. They were the northern Asian superpower of their day. And it looked to all intents and purposes as if the whole world was just theirs for the taking. Do you remember the imagery of chapter 8? 
Assyria looked so powerful that it looked like at any moment he could just sweep over any lesser kingdom like a flooding river bursting its banks, absolutely unstoppable and utterly unopposable. Assyria was this, was this superpower, this giant, who it seemed could just look around, and the whole world was its for the taking. But of the kingdom of Assyria, of the empire of Assyria, the city of Babylon was its crown jewel. Listen to how one historian has described it. He said, the city was surrounded by an intricate system of double walls, the outer range covering 16 to 17 miles, strong and large enough for chariots to pass upon the top. Buttressed, buttressed by defense towers and pierced by eight gates. On the north side, the massive Ishtar gates marked the procession way leading south to the citadel of Escaliah. The temple of Marduk, Marduk was the patron god of Babylon, the Babylonian king of the gods who presided over justice, compassion, healing, regeneration, magic, and fairness. This road went from the temple of Marduk and the adjacent ziggurat of Entomanaki. This paved roadway was half a mile long, its walls decorated with the enameled bricks showing 120 lions and 575 dragons and bulls arranged in alternate rows. Babylon was a glorious and prestigious city, a center of culture and religion, a showpiece of Assyrian power and identity that was built in order to demonstrate to a watching world that at least in Assyrian eyes, there was no other people on earth like them. And so, Babylon was really the epitome of everything that Assyria stood for. It was a symbol of wealth and power, a symbol of prestige and influence, and all of it gained in self-reliance without any, giving any glory to God. And so, it becomes here really a metaphor for godlessness, a metaphor for human pride and hubris that is determined to make a name for itself a metaphor for that anti-God state of mind, as C.S. Lewis described, pride. A mind that was not willing to glorify God as God or humble itself before Him, but instead was determined to amass power and riches and make a name for itself as if it would stand forever. And more than that, it was willing to come against the people of God essentially to prove that it was greater than God. That's why this series of oracles begins here with Babylon. It is the very epitome of how sin corrupts the human heart to make us adversaries against God, comforting ourselves and emboldening ourselves with our human achievements. Now, of course, Babylon will remain this metaphor throughout Scripture. Famously, it will appear again in Revelation as a pseudonym for Rome, a symbolic name that condemned that city as the very embodiment of the anti-God state of mind in the first century, condemning Rome as the very epitome of that pride-filled, self-reliant kingdom building that only seeks glory for itself. And of course, more than just Rome, this name would go on and symbolically stand for every anti-God, pride-filled culture and people that seeks only its own glory. And so that's why it's given the prime position here. Babylon is the very encapsulation of the world outside 
apart from God. But despite its pride and despite its impressiveness, despite its defenses, despite its seeming impenetrability, this oracle comes and warns that Babylon is nothing before God and warns that when God unleashes His wrath against him, it will crumble like a house of cards. This oracle warns that a day is coming when God will call the Medes to do His will, and they will sweep down from the north, and they will devastate the city to the point that it will be, verse 19, like Sodom and Gomorrah. They will be essentially wiped off the map, that it will end up uninhabited, and its glorious temples will be brought down, and will will end up overrun by wild animals. The day is coming when God's sovereignty will be put on magnificent display, will be put on terrifying display, and God will call, not for Israel or Judah, but in His powerful sovereignty, He will call for the pagan Medes to come and do His will. He will demonstrate in the destruction of Babylon, not only His power over the Babylonians or over the Assyrians more broadly, rather in the destruction of Babylon, God says He will demonstrate and show to the world that there is nothing and no one outside of his sovereign control, that even the pagan Medes will do his holy will, and that he is the one who is marshalling all of history to his own appointed ends. So, you read this chapter, it's a hard chapter. The imagery of total devastation here is one that I think is hard for us to swallow. This is one of those chapters that if it were made into a movie, uh, we, we probably wouldn't watch it. Uh, we'd look it up on IMDb, we'd check out the parent advisory, advisory little section, and we'd say, no, 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 this is, this is not edifying, it's not wholesome, it's not something I want to set my mind on, it's not something that I want to fill my heart with, I'm not going to watch something so seemingly gratuitously violent. It's certainly not a show that we would let our children uh, watch. When we go through this, and just take it line by line and, and realize the imagery that is being used here and the description that God is, is using concerning the, the fall of Babylon. It's, it's gruesome. It's grim. It's bloody. It's, it's horrible. But you understand it's not gratuitous. Right? This is an eye for an eye. This is a tooth for a tooth. In fact, what God describes here, what Isaiah, God through Isaiah describes here, is is almost a a mirror image of the the Assyrian strategy for war. If you were to go up and look up a Bible dictionary, you would would find this description that, that tells you of how the Assyrians would go and wage their war, and we know how they did it. They would often go, and they would lay siege to the most prominent city of the little kingdom that they wanted to overtake, They'd lay siege to it. They'd send a messenger to the king saying, give up, it's futile to resist. And while this was going on, they would send out an army to the smaller little villages and towns surrounding. And they would start to torture the inhabitants. They'd start to rape the women. They'd mutilate the bodies of those inhabitants. They'd gouge out their eyes. They would even skin them alive. They would burn the towns. They'd cut down the orchards. They would salt the fields so that they could no longer be used. They would take skins and heads and body parts, and they would put them on display to show that resistance is futile. There is no one like the Assyrians. 
They, they did it gratuitously to show that they could. There was no one who could stand in their way. There was no one who could stop them. They were the Assyrians. They were the masters of the universe. And nothing and no one could stand in their way. It's what we read here. God turns it around. And he says to them that what they have done to others, so it will be done to them. This is a description of perfect justice. But it is Jesus who said that in the economy of God, Luke chapter 6, verse 38, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That's what's being described here. As they have done to others, so it will now be done to them. And it's grim and it's gruesome. But of course, the point here is not just to stick it to the Assyrians. The point here is not just to gloat over their coming destruction. The, the point here is not simply to just make the Judeans sit back self-satisfied. Ha-ha, you enemies of God's people, you will get what's coming to you. Right? This oracle is designed to confront its hearers. It's designed to confront its readers with that crucial question for all of life. Where is your security to be found? The answer that the Assyrians were pursuing is what commentator Alec Motir has called the superpower solution. Where he puts it in another place, he says that they had imperialist syndrome, the understanding that they were in control of their own fates and their own destinies, and that the world was moving to an inevitable, increasing understanding of their greatness. Or if we were to put it in today's language, the Assyrians were sure that they were on the right side of history. They were winning. They were an unstoppable force, and the world was theirs for their taking. All of history appeared to be moving to that inevitable, universal understanding that their way of life was right, that Assyria was king, and the earth was theirs. But of course, what this oracle drives home is that despite their great power, despite their tremendous violence and their seeming domina domination of any and all who they cast their sights on, the ultimate truth, the ultimate reality that they would have to confront is that apart from God, there is no safety and there is no home, regardless of how big your army is. Apart from God, the facade might stand for a while, but in the end, everyone will have to stand before God. And on that day, all of our worldly achievements and all of our worldly power will not be a hill of beans compared with the righteous wrath of God. In his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards vividly put it like this. He said, your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to, hold, to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. That's the message of this oracle. That's the warning to the Babylonians, that they might stand proud and conceited, that they might stand able to overtake anybody and everybody that they set their eyes on. But in the end, their wickedness made them as heavy as lead, 
tending downwards toward hell. And when God should let them go, all of their armies and all of their power will have as much ability to save them as a spider's web has to stop a falling rock. That's the message that goes to them. It's the message that goes to the Judeans. Remember, the Babylonians were not the first audience to hear this oracle. Isaiah was not called like Jonah to go and preach to a foreign nation. Now, clearly, there is an expectation that this oracle will be carried to them, and they will hear it. But the primary hearers of this message are the Judeans, and the warning applies to them just as much as to any pagan. Remember what we saw in those first 12 chapters. The Judeans had, by the time of Isaiah's ministry, dedicated themselves to what we could call a distinctly Babylonian way of living. By this time, they had descended into a wicked self-centeredness. They were preying on the poor and vulnerable. They were seeking comfort and security and earthly power and prestige. And so this passage works something like Nathan's riddle to David. Do you remember in 2 Samuel 12 when he goes into David after his sin with Bathsheba? And Nathan tells him the story of this rich man who has a guest come to him. And he goes out and he steals the sheep of a poor man to feed his guest. It's a story of injustice and the abuse of power, and it kindles David's righteous anger. And David says that the man shall surely die. And you remember what Nathan does? He turns it around and he says to David, you are the man. There's a sense in which this oracle is written to be turned around. That Isaiah is saying to the Judeans, you are the Babylonians, right? We can imagine how this would have kindled in the Judeans a sense of self-satisfied triumphalism. Here, the wicked Assyrians were going to get their comeuppance, but really it's being held up as a mirror so that they can see their own sin, so that they can see its horror, that they can see its end, and that they can repent of it and return to God. And you understand it works the same way for us. You are not nearly as violent and cruel as the Assyrians of course. And you are likely not nearly as as cruel and self-centered as the Judeans had become, as we saw described, especially in those first five chapters. But this speaks to everyone who thinks that their life of ease will continue forever, regardless of their sin. This passage warns us that there is a coming judgment, that there is a coming reckoning for sins, that God will not let sin go, that He will not stand idly by as we indulge injustices, as we pursue lives of self-satisfaction that are independent of Him. This passage tells us that there is a reckoning coming when all those who refuse to glorify God and enjoy Him forever will face His righteous wrath. Our lives might look impressive. We might be kings of the world. We might be on the so-called right side of history. Our worldview might look like it is on an inevitable path to universal acceptance. But unless our worldview is anchored in the worship of God and obedience to His law, and unless we surrender all and fall at the feet of King Jesus and lay down our weapons of rebellion against Him and His righteous rule, this oracle warns us that in our sin, God is our enemy. And in the end, our little kingdoms will fall like a house of cards. But if we remember our principle of hermeneutics, if we remember our principle of interpretation, we realize that this is not a hellfire and brimstone passage that is simply meant to crush you. It is a passage that urges us to see ourselves as we truly are, 
that we might then cast ourselves wholly upon the mercy of God. The judgment is coming against all Babylons, corporate and private, governmental and individual. But the gospel says that this judgment can be escaped if we cast ourselves on the mercy of God, specifically as it is centered on Jesus. Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 3. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can we, sinners, be reconciled to God? Only through Jesus Christ. Only through Jesus who bore the judgment of God against the sins of any and all who put their faith in Him. Only through Jesus, who on His cross bore the justice of God against our sins so that we might receive forgiveness. Only through Jesus, who on His cross was laid waste by God, that we might be granted eternal life. Only by Jesus who on his cross drank the cup of God's wrath down to its very dregs, that we might sit at the table of God's blessing. Matthew chapter 7, as he concluded his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The storm is coming. And we will only stand if we hear the words of Jesus. And what does Jesus tell us? What was the central driving theme of his ministry, even just of the Sermon on the Mount? It was that judgment will come upon everyone who breaks the law of God, but there is mercy to be found in his kingdom. There is judgment that is coming upon sinners and rebels against God, but yet there is joy to be found in his kingdom. There is security to be found in his kingdom. And how do we enter that kingdom? Only by casting ourselves on the mercy of Christ the King. If you have not done that, and only know, you know if you have. If you have not done that, hear the weight of this oracle. See your danger in your sin and do it now. Come to Christ now. Confess your sin and look to His mercy. And if you have done that, look into this oracle and see what you have been saved from. See your pride. See your self-will. See your ugly rebellion against God and give praise to God that in His grace your sin has been forgiven. Your sin has been forgotten. And now you dwell happy and secure in Christ. This chapter is weighty. It's solemn and it is serious, but it comes to us and shows us the lengths and the breadths and the heights and the depths of God's love for sinners in Christ. It is a passage full of judgment, but it is a passage full of grace. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to look into the hard passages in your word, to look 
into the hard chapters of your word and to see that they are there for a reason. Every jot and tittle of our Bibles is there to tell us of Christ. It is there to show us the depths of our sin. It is there to reflect the heights of your love and grace to us. It is there to compel us to come into the kingdom of God. And so we pray that you would give us the courage to look into these passages as difficult and as even as distasteful as they might at first seem. But help us to see that as you do not flinch from our sin, help us, Lord, not to flinch from your grace. For we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.